Queen City Nerves News Hounds is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network. Listen to your city at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. And welcome to another episode of Queen City Nerves News Hounds Podcast. We have Justin here, and for this, since we don't record, we don't film here, I just want Justin and people to know Justin's got some cool flannel sweater on here i've been wearing it uh all week it's uh, a lot different than just my dog hair covered hoodie that i wear every day <laughs> it looks warm and we're in a freezing cold office uh almost all day so i disagree completely that's true I don't think that's a whole nother debate we could do a full hour on that but so as not to waste the time of our guest here uh we won't now we have today um and you may have read about this uh this guy in our latest cover story about what's happening at Eastland Mall, but he also does a lot more work around the community, and we're going to get into it today. But we have Ishmael Kayem, Kayem, um, and they just—they just, they just confirmed it before then, we got on here, and then ah, it's I, like our lawyer. I don't—I never remember how to say his name. My mind told me that I said it wrong the first time, and I—I got it. Ishmael Kayem. We'll let him say it. Yeah. Hey, Ishmael, you, can you introduce yourself? How no, are you no, doing no, today? He said, it, he said it correctly. He did the, <laughs> he did the introduction already. Um, yeah. Ishmael is the principal attorney at Queen City Community Law Firm, which I believe you founded, right? Yeah, it's 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 my solo practice. It's really just me. Okay. So that's like, you know, but... Gotcha. And thinking behind the name, though, so... You also do a lot of work with Housing Justice Coalition. Um, yeah. What's your role there? Yeah, so my official title is the uh, Political Education and Policy uh, Committee Co-Chair. Um, typically, I just say I'm with HJC, so right. I don't have to say all of that. I remember it being a mouthful when we talked, and I was like, I'm yeah. going to just let him say it. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Tell me a little bit about your background. You grew up in Charlotte, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How I'm you got sort of to this point. Uh, yeah, I'm from Clanton Park. Okay. So I don't know if you guys know where Clanton Park is. Yeah, it's over there, like Albemarle Road and Harrisburg Road. Well, well it's sort of like, it's kind of uh, like Clanton Road, so it's between West Boulevard and like South Tryon. Oh, I'm thinking of Becton Park. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah Clanton yeah. Road. That yeah. makes way more so sense. It's, <laughs> like, it's, in the, it's in the West Boulevard corridor, but mm-hmm. it's kind of... You know, talking about gentrification is sort of right where all the stuff from South End is like coming up, also. Right. So it's kind of like in a, in a in a very particular area. Mm-hmm. And is that? I mean, just what got you interested in sort of the work that you're doing now, which is to focus on tenants' rights, uh, workers' rights, things like that, and uh, just to sort of got you to where you are now, to where you are the guy that they came to when, say, the flea market vendors were being pushed out. They there's, knew that this is the guy we should talk to. There's like there's like five questions you just asked. Right, me. no, so yeah. It's like, uh, Take it he, does that, he does that a lot. <laughs> he, he takes a lot of breaths and asks a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah. It's like, uh, so, well, let me, uh, I guess I'll just talk a little bit about my background and how I got into this. Um, so, grew up here. Um, went to Harding, you know, that's, you know, Sedgefield, all that uh, for people who know. And, um, you know, uh, I, you know, I went away when I, you know, I had some, a chance to like spend some time outside the country, whatever, whatever, moved back, um, had some housing struggles myself, right. Uh, particularly like, you know, our, our, we actually had a fire at our house. Um, and in that process of the house being rebuilt, we were staying with family and it was a really difficult time for me, uh, personally. And so, um, you know, I really became interested first and foremost in like the financial crisis, right? And, you know, I had studied abroad and done some other stuff. So I had some background in like politics, economics, all that, but became interested in what caused it, housing. And then, of course, I began to educate myself about the way that the foreclosure crisis particularly affected African-American families um, all over the country, 
and really led to just a kind of like an evaporation of like black generational wealth, but just wealth in general for people because, you know, it was the financial crisis. So that was my thinking, like uh, going into law school. Right. So I left North Carolina for like the second time to go away to school and I moved to New York. So I went to City University uh, School, uh, City, uh, City, uh, CUNY, mm-hmm. City University of New York School of Law. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's really, that became sort of ground zero. I mean, through the connections I made there and folks I met being in the public interest community, um, you know, I, did, I had a chance to like do some internships and just get exposed to a lot of the much more sort of like act, uh, active um, activist culture in New York without going into like too much detail about it. And one summer I did an internship with what was then called the Urban Justice Center, um, the community development project, I think, of the Urban Justice Center with a really good friend of mine who, had, who himself was a, uh, a or community organizer for like seven years in New York. And so we were both doing this internship together. And it was my first time like actually kind of assisting a tenants association, a tenants union. And it was my first time really reading about and learning about the connections between lawyering and community organizing. And so through that internship and sort of those experiences, I really began to like think about specifically the role of like tenant organizing and building political power from a base, from a grassroots base, and how that is necessary for there to be any type of like systemic change. And um, you know, my, my mother's elderly and I figured I was gonna come back to North Carolina anyway, even though I hadn't gone to law school with that intention. So putting all that together, um, I became interested in like thinking about, well, what could, what could we possibly build? What could, what could we possibly kind of do about gentrification in Charlotte? And so um, took, you know, details, I began to apply for some fellowships and think about building some kind of organization to address that, right, upon returning. And, um, and I was fortunate enough to become a Berkeley Law Foundation fellow. Um, and um, that gave me a base of support. And the Latin American Coalition was my host organization for that fellowship. Right. So when I came back, I actually wasn't licensed as an attorney. I was more so like doing things like reviewing lease agreements, assisting the staff, particularly this was like, I came back late 2019, so the pandemic started the following year, and there was like the eviction moratorium in place. Right. So I was sort of advising the staff on how to deal with that. There were a lot of issues with that. Help do like an eviction moratorium, CDC affidavit clinic, which the affidavit was the form you could sign and give to your landlord to prevent yourself from being evicted for non-payment of rent while the federal, uh, CD, while the federal eviction moratorium was in place. So I was doing all that, and... Um, built relationships, and I got involved with the Housing Justice Coalition also when I moved back in 2019, even though I, I had begun making contacts probably the summer of 2018, because I knew I was going to be coming back here. So I, I got involved with that. I can talk a little bit more about that later, but that's what started it out. And then I got licensed end of 2020 and started the law firm in beginning January of 2021. Mm-hmm. And so my first year in Charlotte really was just building connections, organizing in different ways, different campaigns, um, learning more legally, and assisting the Latin American coalition. Um, and so that's really what it was. I kind of came back and just jumped right into it. But it, it, the work really comes from a really personal place and a lot of my personal experiences. And then, you know, I always thought about, like, my own personal relationship with Charlotte. Like, I have this love-hate relationship with Charlotte like a lot of Charlotte natives do. And um, it's like... To me, um, I really struggle with what I see when I look around at Charlotte. I struggle with like 
the narratives, the stories being told, whose stories aren't being told, what's disappearing. And it's like, you know, I, I spent a lot of my life really trying to get away from Charlotte because I felt like it wasn't a place that was friendly to someone like me. Like I'm a Muslim, I grew up here. It's kind of a Christian fundamentalist culture. Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, and not just that, but honestly, just racism, small-mindedness. So Charlotte, for me, was always a place I was trying to escape from. That's how I always view Charlotte. And like thinking about my mother and the situation that I, before law school with the house and all of that really made me think deeply about my ties to the city. And I really had to, a lot of this is really about for me, like confronting a lot of these things um, that, that really have like troubled me, but have also, I think, driven me in the direction that I'm going. So both personally, professionally, and politically. But, um, you know, I mean, I love Charlotte. You know, it's like, I mean, as you know, I've, I've, I've lived, in, I lived in the UK, I've lived in West Africa, I've had a chance to travel, see other parts of the world. Um, and it's not, I'm not saying that like I'll always be in Charlotte forever, but like the, like when I, the Charlotte that I know, like the Charlotte the vendors represent, right. like that, that Eastland Mall, what Eastland Mall used to be, East Charlotte, like West Charlotte, like, you know, all of that, like, like that's the Charlotte I know and that's what, that's what I love and that's what's disappearing, right? right. And, and that part of Charlotte, you know, the people, you know, collectively, like, you know what I mean, is, is, um, have been deprived of a voice for a long time and we're kind of at the point now where people are really standing up and people want to have a voice in decision-making. And, you know, obviously we talk about issues of, like, police brutality, right? We talk about, um, you know, those things are kind of in the forefront. But the, the, the material economic conditions that lead to the confrontation with the police in the first place, the concentration of poverty, segregation, gentrification, all these types of things, right? Like, that's, those are also things that people are, you know, people want to raise their voices about. But I think there's, there needs to be some direction, guidance, conversation back and forth on how to do that. So that's really what Queen City Community Law Firm is about. I mean, that's really like the legal arm of it, doing eviction defense, you know, aggressively going after derelict landlords, um, doing some wage theft, and that the the wage theft and the sort of breach of contract representing subcontractors really came from my relationship with the Latin American Coalition, because they have a lot. You know, obviously, with the Spanish-speaking community, you have like day laborers, you have like a lot of folks that are subcontractors that don't get paid on jobs, and you have obviously you know people working in uh, very precarious like economic conditions and sectors, right? So. That's where that aspect of the work came from. I mean, uh, my first year in practice, you know, I had like some like a relationship with the Latin American Coalition where I was providing representation for their clients. Mm -hmm. So to get to your point about how I got to the vendors, it really was like, I think, I mean, the Latin American Coalition isn't, I have to say, it's not involved in like the representation. I don't want to throw them out, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. But um, well, that's how you built those networks. Yeah, yeah. The to proximity. the point where they felt comfortable looking for you. Absolutely. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So that's. You know, so I guess like the, the, you know, the law practice plays a role and then my involvement with HJC is kind of, it's not its own thing, but that's more the sort of direct organizing type route that, you know, so I know that's kind of a lot, no, I, <laughs> but you, I but you asked me, like, you asked me so five questions. So listen, you know that's saying? all I, good. I, I, I love that kind of answer. Yeah, yeah. I always tell people that they're like, I know I just said a lot. If I'm doing interviews, I'm like, it's a hell of a lot better than the people who don't say enough, <laughs> don't say anything. Um, so let's talk about a little bit about this Eastland thing because that's what brought. This is how I how I got connected with you and sort of the timely situation that's happening now. Before we get into some of these broader issues around what's going on in Charlotte, but you know, 
it's an interesting thing because I know that you've just within the last month or Jan end of January is when you first connected with uh, <laughs> these folks who have been running a flea market on the old Eastland Mall site yep. since 2015. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just, it, it's really a complex story just for the fact that since as long as I've been a journalist in the city, that's sort of been a, that's been a site that's been a, a bad look for the city in terms of like, when are you going to do something with this, with this property? Now they finally, after years and years, found someone who wants to do something with the with the property. But then the question becomes: How are you going to um, uh, how are you going to bring in the community and make sure that it's not just a huge harbinger of gentrification of of redevelopment that displaces people? And I don't think there's any better representation than that of the literal people, be it the skateboarders on the on the park at the at the Eastland DIY park or the v flea market vendors. This is it's not just like oh leading to higher housing prices down the road and then those people might not be able to rent and or buy anymore around that property. This is literal folks who have been making their livelihoods there or creating a culture there over years and years and now they've got just got to go without much help. Um, and like I said, I know that you've just sort of connected with them in January, but I know you're also familiar with the situation. I mean, what is it? What was your first sort of? Uh, takeaway from the fact that I know that as soon as they sort of reached out to you, uh, you started trying to contact the city and, and set up some meetings to talk about what can happen next. Because as you mentioned to me, everyone knew this was coming. We wrote about it in March 2020 when they first approved for rezoning. But there could have been more, there could have been more of a, of a desire, of a attempt to help effort. these. Yes, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's what I'm looking for. Well, I mean, I think, um, well, number one, I mean, we kind of have to acknowledge the situation for what it is, right? I mean, there's, you know, we can get into, like, I'm an attorney. Like, I understand, you know, uh, licensing and lease agreements and liability and all that kind of stuff. But I really think all of that is, like, kind of secondary. You know, this is about, like you said, the site has been viewed as a blight by a lot of people. And the city is trying to, you know, attract, quote, unquote, economic development um, and investment. And that, of course, is like taking city land and like giving it away, right, to, you know, oftentimes to the highest bidder or to, you know, for something that is going to make the area look different than what it looks like now. And that the, the way, the preparation for that is being set. So that's really the backdrop. And so the, what really happened really was that a couple of folks from the flea market came to me and asked me, for rep asked me to represent the market. Um, because there, like you said, there was this. There, they they recognized that there was a need to basically try to find a location and get a lease, try to get some sort of long-term agreement where the market could, could continue to operate with all of the vendors there collectively. Um, and they wanted someone to act as a point person. They also wanted. Um, they also there was also a recognition that you know certain things needed to be formalized in terms of like the legal structure of the market and things like that. And so they wanted they wanted help with that. And so in that capacity, I sent, I sent an email to the Economic Development Department on January 25th, um, and I didn't receive a response until February 11th. And February 11th was the day that people were, they were setting up on a Friday to sell Saturday and Sunday, and the police, the, well, it was two representatives from the real estate department of the city came out and with the police and told people that they couldn't, like, set up and, and asked people to, like, leave the site. And so... You know, I was at my office. I, this was late in the day, Friday, when that when that happened. If you know the Latin American Coalition, that's where my office is in the building. Still, is like right down the street from the Eastland Mall site. Right. So they came, got me, went out there, and I had some words with the folks from the real estate department. 
Now it's just like, listen, you know, I sent this letter to economic development to avoid the situation. You know, like this is like an escalation. It's like not necessary. You don't have to. This isn't how things right, sh you know, should be done. And when the economic development department reached out to me earlier in the day, they basically were just like, hey, like nobody, nobody, you know, by that name, the specific name that I gave them for the name of the flea market, which the, the, the name the vendors want to go by has changed since then. But there were like no entity by that name has been authorized to be there. You know, I would kindly ask you to like let your clients know that, you know, they like they, you know, they don't have permission to be there. But there was no indication that the police were going to be called. There was no indication that um, I think the sort of drastic, abrupt approach that was taken would be taken. Right. Right. For, for contrast, they, they told the skate park you have until March 3rd. Uh, they gave them a date weeks out in advance as opposed to just showing up with police and with right. jackhammers. <laughs> well, and to be fair, I mean, I think, like, part of the complexity with this particular story is that, you know, they they did meet, like, uh, one the one rep from the real estate department did meet with, like, a couple of the vendors in October, right? right. After that, the 30-day agreement... And, which was basically an agreement for the month of September 2021, um, expired. Now, let's just be mindful of the fact that the market has operated there since 2015. Mm -hmm. So that, that there's no way that that's the only agreement that was there, but that's the latest one. And once that was up, they did go out there and talk to people. But the understanding was, number one, this message was to be communicated in a subsequent meeting to all of the vendors, which was supposed to happen that, that Sunday. Um, you know, after the, the, after the person, the representative from the real estate department went out there in October. And number two, there's been constant communication with the vendors and this particular individual from the real estate department, uh, probably up until January, some point in January, I would say. Um, so, you know, I, I think, again, when you kind of take all the facts into consideration, I still think that the way this was handled was definitely unreasonable right. um, and, you know, put people at risk you know, being, um, you know, indirect exposure to the police and, you know. And it was my that. understanding from one of the vendors I spoke to, uh, who I called Maria in the story, that how that sort of went down in October was that this person came out on a Friday night and was, was sort of expressing what you just said and then was told, you know, well, no, a lot of people aren't here yet. They come on Saturday and Sunday. Can you come back during the weekend? And was told, well, you know, I've... Uh, when I work on weekends, I'm going to try to make it out this weekend. But if I don't come this weekend, then I never came in the first place. And at least that's how they understood it. So they just never saw her. Well, and that's then also, that. I mean, the fact, too, is that, you know, that was in October and this was February 11th. So that's what, like, right? Uh, I mean, it's, you know, five months, you know, so it's I mean, the city, <laughs> there's no way that the city wasn't aware that the vendors were operating there on the site. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so it's. Four months, um, I just did the math. For you know, seven years. <laughs> and, um, you know, like I said, I mean, I, I mean, no one's disputing the fact that um, the vendors would have to probably leave the site, right? It was, it's just more that, you know, I, I reached out to the city and I wanted to kind of have some kind of correspondence or communication at least to avoid the situation. Did you, when you were out there on the February 11th, did you see any uh, police forcibly removing tents, breaking them down, because that's what I was told, but I couldn't confirm. Right. I mean, by the time I got out there, I think that most of that had, like, stopped. I know the police were talking to a couple of people. And even when I was having a conversation with the reps from the real estate department, there were, like, four or five cops there. Mm -hmm. um, so Yeah. Um, one of the biggest narratives, uh, and it's true, uh, uh, confirmed by folks who 
would rather it not be true. But uh, one of the biggest narratives pushed in media as, as justification for clearing this tent or clearing this, uh, I almost said tent city because <laughs> oh, yeah, no, reporting no, on that. A lot of parallels. Always right? feels like that. <laughs> yes. Uh, for clearing this flea market was a couple, was one incident specifically about someone from out of state selling guns there. Um, and that was as far as I'm talking to a guy named Jorge, who is a well known vendor there from all the way at its founding, and just telling me sort of like, that's the reason we've been asking about paperwork, and that's the yeah. reason that we're looking for a more official location. Right. Here. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, that's. I would say that's exactly right. I mean, first of all, like you know, this individual. Um, I think this individual has actually been released um, from custody, and is kind of just like free to continue. Yeah. You know, and and um, I, I don't know. I I just. I mean, you know, it happened. Um, this individual, as far as I know, was not considered to be like a part of the flea market. No, yeah. Um, or a part of the, they prefer, you know, market, central market, open air market, mm -hmm. you know, but. Um, I was told that his attitude was very bad from the jump and they wanted him out, but they didn't really know, they had no way to do that. Right. And, and even before they knew what he was actually selling. Right. And I mean, in that, you know, that, that really gets into, right, the need to have clear um, rights and obligations, right? To have like, there to be clear, delineated responsibilities um, and just mechanisms, both internally among the vendors themselves, which is another reason they hired me, um, and then also externally in terms of whatever agreement, right, that, that's that's in place. Um, so, I mean, yeah, I mean, everything you said there is true, but, I mean, that's, the market, you know, doesn't have anything to do with that, mm -hmm. right? And like, like I said, this individual will likely continue to go to various locations and continue to engage in commerce. Right. Um, and... You know, I mean, it kind of is what it is. I mean, I just wonder if they had done the same thing somewhere else, right? Like, mm -hmm. would the conversation be the same way? But. Right. There are some smaller markets. I actually saw one when I was out reporting on this right down the street at Commonwealth High School. Um, ah. Yeah. That's right next to the Latin American Coalition. Okay, yeah, yeah. yeah I wasn't it's, like, I had, it's been a while since I've been in the LAC well, office. but Well, it's like you have, like, Commonwealth, then, like, Winterfield, then, like, LAC. Okay, so yeah. It's right there. Um, are there... Have you, in your experience with these vendors, I know that there's still ongoing efforts in terms of possibly maybe finding a property that they can get get onto and really set something up that can be lasting. But have you are you aware of many of these other vendors actually finding other places that they can set up at? Because well, it looked tight. It looked tight at Commonwealth. It didn't look like there was a ton of space for new. Yeah, parts. I mean, so the best of my, I don't want to give the locations, but to the best of my knowledge, there there everybody is just. The general mood is that everybody is sort of like in panic mode because people are reliant upon, you know, I mean, being able to, to sell for, you know, their, their livelihood. So people have gone to different locations, some existing markets like open air markets in the city, um, some at Commonwealth. Um, a few organizations have like volunteered like small amounts of spaces. But right, we are in the process of, potential, of potentially negotiating a new location. But I mean, that's. You know, that's really all I can say about right. that. No, yeah. definitely. And that's what I was more curious about. Rather than naming specific spots, it was like, do we have a good enough economy of these open-air spaces? I mean, well, I mean... In that it's almost like you don't see them until you're looking for them, because I drive right, right by that one all the time and didn't even know. Right. I mean, and there were folks that, that definitely reached out with the media strategy, and we can talk about the demonstration and the response and all that, but there were folks that reached out that had some spaces available um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's, 
how can I put it? There is like open space, but it is it's just it's all sort of tied up. It's rapidly right. disappearing and and it's privately owned. Right. And you so don't want to keep getting pushed out, pushed out. Right. And so sometimes you might have a space, a plot of land that's maybe zoned for like industrial or commercial and you can't really do as much with it and and someone might be open to like doing it. So there mm. or you might have someone that leases a space, right? And so yeah, I mean, uh, there's not there's not nearly as much, but um, I've been pleasantly surprised by kind of you know what I've seen in yeah. terms of the response. Well, one thing I'm interested in out of this story is sort of the um, the organizing power of those who just don't who aren't organizers nat- naturally or, or aren't trained and or schooled in such a thing. But like, what communities need to know, and when I say communities, I mean anything from a skate park full of 200 skaters who are normal regulars at a spot or uh, folks who have, are all vendors at the same market or folks who all live in a specific community your more uh, definitive definition of a community um, is to like, you work with the Housing Justice Coalition, you work a lot around this community organizing type of thing and what do you think is something that folks need to know about their own power in terms of what are the possi- what are the potentials and possibilities to stand up against certain things, not even against, because you know we've said a million times already on this podcast alone, this was coming no matter what. Right. But what do communities like that need to know about their own rights in terms of, or even potentials for empowering themselves when they're getting taken advantage of in certain ways? Yeah, yeah. It's, again, it's like like three questions. No, I know. <laughs> I'm just I, listen. I don't come in here prepared questions. I'm just thinking out loud. No, no, you got it. Uh, it's, it's good. Um, what do folks need to know? Well, okay. I mean, uh, first of all, like I would, I would take a step back, right? And and when we talk about organizing, realizing that, of course, you know, you have quote unquote professional organizers. You know, that just means someone that maybe understands like different like tactics that you can use. Um, I think the the main thing really is that you know people have to kind of, you always have like more power and more agency and more ability to like to change or to do things and you realize, right? But if we're gonna talk about this scientifically, everything has to start with an analysis of what the problem is, right? Like there, there has to be an understanding of like why what is happening. Like a lot of people don't even kind of know where to start or don't know like where the, where the target is because there's not an understanding of like how power works in Charlotte, how power works in the United States, right? The broader, there's the broader political and kind of economic issues, right, really of, really it's, it's capitalism, it's like the hyper-commodification of land and housing. But, you know, what does that actually mean when you kind of take a look at like local Charlotte politics, right? And so um, I think first of all is number one, like having the wherewithal and the ability and the willingness to like ask the questions and be willing to like try, try things. I mean, my process in the, as, as a member of the Housing Justice Coalition you know how we we got started. So in 2019, we got started. Basically, we started reading a book called *In Defense of Housing*. Um, I recommend it. Um, it's just really dope. And we did like a, a reading group, and um, it was like myself. Um, I think another individual you've spoken to, and you know, there was a few of us. It was like mm-hmm. there was, wasn't that many of us. And so we began to like read this book and really kind of unpack the broader political and economic trends in housing. And at the same time, as we delved into it, like the pandemic happened, and so. As we were reading the book, we were like, okay, well, let's maybe do a Know Your Rights presentation to, some, to, to tenants and let's maybe canvas like, uh, like a, an apartment complex. 
And so we would, you know, we would do that. We also, uh, because of how Housing Justice Coalition was formed, it was a coalition of like nonprofits and organizations already. So you had folks from like Action and C, from like, uh, you know, just several other organizations already there and present. Is this, a, is this organization that had a lot to do with canvassing and, and helping folks at Lake Harbor? Yeah, yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So we met a bunch of folks with yeah. them when we were out so there. That was HJC's like first campaign like as okay, HJC okay. was Lake I Harbor. I want to make sure it was the same. Yeah, yeah. So it was I, hot that day. It was hot. So I was, yeah, I was, the, I was, I was involved with Lake Harbor also. Like, I mean, uh, working with the organizers, I did some legal research um, for you know for that campaign and, and also. But basically, like, we started with the reading group, and we began to just orient ourselves, and we began to just take, to just kind of involve ourselves in, like, different campaigns. So one was, there were tenants at the Days Inn Hotel who were basically, motel, who were staying at the motel under the shelter-in-place order from the governor, and, like, the owner of the motel was, like, cutting off the water, cutting off the power, trying to force people out. And we just, like, did, like, a sort of public campaign, along with some of the tenants there, people there who were really active. Um, and we were able to like get them to turn the water and the power back on, um, even though people ended up having to move out later on because of structural or wiring, that one too. wiring issues. Yeah, too. So we were yeah. So that was something that was something that we were also involved in. Um, we basically kind of were doing all of these like periodic different campaigns while educating ourselves about housing. And I think the campaign that really probably changed everything for us was was in Howie Acres. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Howie Acres is a historically African-American neighborhood in Northeast Charlotte, kind of between like the Plaza, Sugar Creek, Eastway, that area. And they basically, it was a developer that owned a rental, that owned several rental properties in the neighborhood. And he wanted to rezone the properties basically to, to be able to build like the McMansions that you see in like Noda and what was what's left of North Charlotte. It borders Noda, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah so yeah. what's left of North Charlotte, right, right. is like, you know, you, he, was, he wanted to build those types of houses. And basically the community was against it because of the fear of property taxes being raised, but also just, you know, um, the individual was just kind of a prick and like <laughs> the voices of the community weren't heard. And they got in contact with me and we basically helped them organize a campaign. Like we, and like all of us are like, none of us are professional organizers. All of us are volunteers and, you know, and we more or less like, we're okay. So what does the rezoning process look like? All right. There's, there's a notice requirement. There's a community meeting requirement. This, this developer hasn't fulfilled any of these requirements. So we began to send note to send emails and letters to city council. And the other thing we did was we basically began to like, we came up with a letter, worked with Howie Acres to create it. And we sent it to a bunch of different organizations across the city. So like, like my neighborhood organization, like some of the other ones in East Charlotte, some other groups, nonprofits, whatever, all signed on to the letter. And what happened was that we also ended up uh, scheduling a meeting with Larkin Eagleston, who was the rep. And we packed, this is during the pandemic, we had an in-person meeting and we packed it full of people from the neighborhood. Like not, we didn't do it, but people from the neighborhood showed up. Right. And there's some really great just uh, shout out to like Roma Johnson Durham and Miss Vicky and everybody, just some really strong black women and Howie Acres that really were, you know, I mean, just in tune with the neighborhood. And we we were working, like, in partnership and solidarity with them, right? But we packed out that meeting with Larkin. And at the end of the day, the developer withdrew their petition, Mm -hmm. which is really the only way that in the – there's a lot of zoning changes now happening. But the old way, right, typically it's a very petitioner-friendly process, meaning if a developer wants to change a use – the usage of a a piece of land to build whatever the fuck on there, like, you know, like – 
the process, it's hard to prevent it, right? Because oftentimes the the oversight won't, unless it's a technical sort of zoning building thing. Yeah, you can sort of get yeah. them to change little stuff, yeah, they but won't hardly really, going to withdraw. They're not going to withdraw it, especially if the community objects to it, right? I mean, the only way you, is either for the council to vote it down or for the or for the petition or the developer to like withdraw the petition. And that's what happened in this case. And so from there, I mean, we really began to get involved with like um, some of the older... Um, particularly historically African-American neighborhoods in the city. Um, we began, you know, I don't know, we, we just kind of developed a, a sort of a, a working person expertise in policy and zoning um, and organizing strategy. And other neighborhoods, other folks that were people who were interested in, like I said, pushing back and coalescing, particularly when it comes to land use, development, growth of the city and how that growth isn't equitable, how that growth has always excluded historically African-American and working class neighborhoods in the Crescent, whatever. You know, there's a coalition that was coming together and they asked us for support. They asked us for what we thought. And like, I mean, it's just kind of taken off since then. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, just to tell you, like, it was just like a few motherfuckers reading the book. Right. <laughs> and just no, like, awesome. and just like, you know, like, I'm allowed to curse on here, right? Yeah, that's, absolutely. Okay, all right, great, yeah. great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's like a few people reading the book. And, um, but I will say, I think the thing that really, for us, made a difference was that we became to adopt, HJC had the principle of housing as a human right. And what we were trying to do was unpack what that means and actually put that principle into action. And that's always been our guiding principle is like, as long as housing is commodified, like there's, there's going to be housing and preca housing precarity, there's always going to be a crisis, and there's always going to be deep and incredible inequality in society. So, um, I mean, we, I think, are guided by a particular political vision, but also we combine that political vision with community organizing that is, in, that is very much in tune with like zoning policy and decision making locally here in Charlotte. And we also just don't isolate people. Like we, we work with all different types of community members, neighborhoods, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know, I think maybe some of the developers or some of the people in city council or, you know, whomever might, might say that we, you know, we're a little bit firebrand, but I mean, whatever. But like, you know, in terms of working with the people here in the city, you know, we try to work with, the, with as many people as possible and, 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 and try to work in coalition in solidarity with people. So. Mm -hmm. With, that, with all that being said, I mean, I think a lot of it is um, educating yourself, you know, having, taking the time and really just putting your foot forward, being willing to make mistakes, being willing to, um, uh, you know, engage in trial and error. But also, honestly, a lot of it is just persistence. Um, and, and also just, I have a, you know, I have a dope, there's just a dope group of people that I work with, with HJC. I mean, we're like a family, you know, and like, um, we all... In, in some way, shape, or another, uh, what, what I notice is more of the people in our coalition are either Charlotte natives or have a, have a direct connection to Charlotte. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I know that all that's like kind of vague, but you know, we do uh, we do do uh, reading groups, which we're doing tonight of, of in defense of housing and uh, other events. Um, you know, if people want to come check us out, we're on IG, Facebook. I don't know how, how early it is for like me to just like plug. No, like, plug away. <laughs> plug anytime. Uh, maybe I should wait to the end. You're but, um, good. Um, yeah, it's uh, HJC underscore CLT on, on Instagram and you can check out the Housing Justice Coalition or Charlotte Housing Justice Coalition. You can Google it. We're on Facebook. Um, yeah, follow That's us. Get in touch. All that. Yeah. Failed Investments. A store that only sells black light posters. 
Boxes of nothing but the crumbs that settle at the bottom of cereal bags. I call it breakfast dust. A saxophone what only white people can hear. Bras for cats. Or a bar for dogs. Be sure to check out the Robot Johnson Show, March 5th at 8 p.m. $22 you'll never get back. At the Charlotte Ballet, 701 North Tryon Street, Charlotte. We'll see you there. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. More failed investments! Zipline tours of Gastonian surrounding areas! It's like paintball, but instead, it's a big fin stand place where kids can throw rocks at each other. Instead of hamburger helper, canned oyster helper. A NASCAR Hall of Fame. Take that, popular tourist attraction. Be sure to check out the Robot Johnson Show, March 5th at 8 p.m. at the Charlotte Ballet, 701 North Tryon Street, Charlotte. Two years in the making, mostly new sketches. more interesting aspects of our conversation I think was to discuss the, the broader uh, actions around this these corridors of opportunity which you your office at least sits on one of these which is the Albemarle Road corridor of opportunity the, the really only one that's sort of launched you can say uh, is the Beatty's Ford one yeah. uh, in terms of it's basically a, an investment strategy that they, the city is trying to pump a lot of money, millions of dollars into, tens of millions of dollars into these six corridors of opportunity, as they call them, which are areas that can use the investment. Um, it's going to cost tens of millions of dollars to install those electric car chargers. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's what, it's funny because I was thinking about this conversation today when the city and the governor was actually here to install this, this little electric car charger on a light pole in Beatty's Ford Road, and a lot of people on Twitter are just like, why? why? Yeah, that's not... <laughs> to what end? That's my, that's my first concern if I live on Beatty's Ford Road. Right, like exactly. Having, having a car charger for my... You know, I but. saw Brett Well, Jensen. as an affluent white person with an electric car, if you get stuck on that side of town, you're going to want a charger. Right? Right. Yeah, they, yeah. Want, they don't not want me. someone to get stuck. Um, I saw Brett <laughs> Jensen said that even a city employee had told him that it'll probably get stripped within 10 days or within a week or something of it being there. But it's like, why are you, I don't know. It goes to the community. Right. Yes, exactly. Which is what the governor wants, I guess. So that's, you know. All I've seen so far opening up Beatty's Ford as a part of this corridors of opportunity is a Chase Bank. There is a bank. There is a Chase Bank on Beatty's Ford. Yes, there is. I'm trying to figure out, I mean, you work with HJC and you're in tune with these sort of things as someone who's now on an, I've, they've started to finalize the corridors of opportunity plan for Albemarle. I mean, what are you seeing in terms yeah. of these plans? And it doesn't even have to necessarily be a COP plan, but a the Eastland plan, they're they're pretty specific about what they have going on there. And it not a lot of promising things for the folks who have already been there for generations. So what I'll say is that I'll talk about the plans and mm-hmm. talk about kind of a, try to give a brief overview of them. But 
all of this, like these plans basically are sort of like, you know, uh, like vessels or containers and they're just going to be filled with like money coming from outside. Mm -hmm. And with the way things are, with the way the sort of legal landscape is and the decision making by city council, it's just going to be like bleach that's going to scrub away like communities that exist, particularly working class communities in the Crescent, you know, East, West, Charlotte, so on and so forth. So, you know, there has to be some sort of counterbalance in terms of pressuring the decision makers locally, right, to to kind of offset some of the harmful effects and even redirect like those effects toward an end that is at least more positive, right, that produces actual like benefits like for communities, either whether that's direct investment, affordable housing, infrastructure improvements, Right. And there has to be there has to be engagement with communities. But we know for sure, based on the way Charlotte has operated, Charlotte is a very pro-business, pro-finance city. I mean, that's the history of Charlotte is as a city built by industry, you know, industry titans upon industrialization all the way up until banking, which was the same thing. So communities, neighborhoods, labor unions, ordinary working folks have to be organized like you have to be organized so that you can collectively exert power to bring about policies wherein you can like at the very least offset the harmful effects of these policies and at least or and, and ideally right like redirect that into actual investment that's going to make your community better mm-hmm. where you know you can get a grocery store in a food desert and you don't have to get gentrified out of the neighborhood and you can actually enjoy it so the first part of that though is like folks are working there's a lot going on but it's to really understand what these terms mean. Like the name corridors of opportunity is a misleading name. What these are are like special economic zones or like tax zones where a lot of tax breaks are going to be given for all of this investment that's pouring in. And a lot of it, a lot of at least, and and the corridors of opportunity are kind of like a local version of like the broader like opportunity zones that were passed nationally um, by uh, through like the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, which mm-hmm. is Trump's tax cut bill. Mm-hmm. And what that is, is it, it, on a national level, all over the country, there are basically zone, special zones of economic opportunity where whoever, if you build something in this in a particular zone, they, they tend to be in depressed, economically depressed areas. You get like, um, I don't know, like you may not have to pay taxes for like 10 years. Like, don't quote me on that. But right, right. You know what I mean? So I'm it's, sorry, it's, you're on the record here. Well, well, well yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It's, no, it's all good. <laughs> But you get like, you know, I mean, right. they're, they're, they're incredible like tax benefits that are given such that it's farcical to think that there's going to be any real investment into areas that are go- that's going to benefit people. There's at the, at the federal level, there's no oversight. There's no um, tracking this money. And there's been a lot of articles about how it really how it hasn't resulted in any real benefit to people. So the, the z- opportunity zones are kind of like a localized version of that. And the city has used different criteria to target different areas. Some of that is like crime statistics, um, obviously. And, and you, if you look at where these zones are, like Beattysford, I think there's, there's one for the West Boulevard Corridor. There's one for like Albemarle. They're all, they're in the Crescent. They're in like the economically deprived areas of the city. And what's happening is when the dollars come into the city, they're going to go to the areas where the land is the cheapest. Mm-hmm. And the land is the cheapest in the areas where there hasn't been investment for a really long time. That's like the black and brown parts of the city. Mm-hmm. And so... The rents, everything, the cost of living rapidly increased. The businesses that were there before kind of disappeared. This is like a ripple effect. But this is like systemic. And so with the corridors of opportunity, the city has an opportunity to incentivize maybe like 
alternative economic models, like a cooperative economic model. So you have organizations like the West Side Community Land Trust, mm -hmm. right, trying to build build land that's owned cooperatively by the community, right? Acquire that land and, and make it such that people can actually, you know, buy a house mm -hmm. there, right? So, you know, I mean, the city can do that or the city can kind of do business as usual, which is like to just attract a lot of investment that's just going to completely transform the area such that in a way that people who live there don't benefit from it. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a lot, it's really daunting, but like I said, I think these terms are used a lot and these terms are kind of, I think, intentionally deceptive. Like opportunity for what? Opportunity for whom? Mm -hmm. Right. And what's, Chase Bank. Yeah. <laughs> right. And that's, and that's what you see. I mean, like, you know, um, you, you see like, you see who the corporations, the, the sort of entities that are investing, um, you know, in getting these kinds of breaks. Um, and I think there are those within the, the development community who, so there's like another organization, the Community Benefits Coalition, which is made up of several different neighborhoods uh, from the Crescent. And it's, it's kind of acting as like a broad coalition of neighborhoods uh, pushing for um, equitable decision making when it comes to development. And this is specifically, a lot of it is in reference to the 2040 plan right. and all of the changes. We had an episode with Ricky Hall on, on here. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. talking about it. Yeah. yeah, all of it is in reference to that. But um, yeah, he's, he's, he's like kind of like the, the visionary for the CBC. But um, I mean, you know, I think that a lot of developers maybe feel like, well, we're just like building. We're just like mm -hmm. getting contracts and just kind of doing our thing. And what we do. Yeah, right, right. And and I think the thing is, is like, you know, some like you might have a conversation with one, and they might say, yeah. And I just casually mentioned that they talked to like three or four members of city council, with without understanding that it means like you have a level of political access and power, right? So we're we're talking about money and dollars moving around, but really these the the large economic actors have the ability to sort of access the political system to access the planning staff access city council and we need communities to have that same level of access but that's only going to happen through organization and also through like an understanding of what these things mean and there's there's a, just a tremendous need for a kind of educational effort and also you know charlotte is a very like just generally geographically spread out place and it's you know um kind of segregated and you know, there, there's, on a more human level, there's just a need for, like, people in the city to really just get to know each other. Mm -hmm. You know what I'm saying? I'm talking about folks in, like, East Charlotte and West Charlotte. Like, when I, when I proposed my project to the Berkeley Law Foundation, I called it the East Side, West Side Community Development Empowerment Project. That's, mm -hmm. right. <laughs> which is, you know, it's kind of, I, I don't know if that's, like, corny or pretentious <laughs> or, like, aspirational, whatever it is. But mm -hmm. um, I think the intent, though, is really... You know, I mean, there should be like unity. You know what I mean? There Absolutely. should be. I want there to be like Black Latino unity. I mean, that's why I'm really happy to be at the Latin American Coalition and happy to be working with the vendors who are uh, are fucking amazing. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're yeah. they're really like uh, just you know organized and like you know want to go and and want to like you know after that after that happened. I mean, like you know they were. They were ready to go. I mean, they wanted to do a rally the next day. <laughs> we right. decided showing up at city council. Yeah, yeah, we did it on Monday, and and um, you know, it's 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 really inspiring when you I think work with people and 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 you you see that 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 untapped potential is what I'm saying. Like this is like the real the real economic development. The wealth of Charlotte is in like its communities. It's mm -hmm. in like this, right? Right. And it's like. Um, you know, it's, it's incredible. So, you know, they have some demands uh, for the city. Um, I can't be on like a public kind of facing situation without putting them out there. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they want, they want a transitional plan. 
You know what I mean? They want and they want to in, they want to have some kind of partnership with the city because, you know, I mean, I, I think I think that's the least they can ask for. But the vendors, at, you're yeah, talking about. yeah. But at the very least, like the city has partnered with, you know, Crosland Southeast and David Tepper for the East Lamont site. Mm-hmm. Why shouldn't the city partner with the vendors? Right. Yeah, I think it's their responsibility to partner with the vendors because those vendors built a space in the city that people go to. They they mm-hmm. spend money at. They you know make their livelihoods off of and it and it gave that place the sort of recognition that they needed to lock in the deal with Tepper. Right. Yeah. You know, yeah. they they're the ones that, you know, started something out of a space that had nothing in it and brought the attention to it and now they're getting put out by the city so the city should give them somewhere else to be. And they don't need the Which is ridiculous. Like common yeah. sense. It's just right. ridiculous common sense. Right. Mm-hmm. And that could be financial assistance. I mean, that could be um, logistical support. That could be business and economic uh, resources, educational resources, you know, any of that. I mean, and, and it's just like, again, who is Charlotte for? Right. And like, who's, who's, who, you know, who's, um, who really matters. Right? right. And, and I mean, no, I mean, people are, you know, people are tired of it. People are, you know, people are going to stand up and, and say, you know, you know, we, we deserve dignity and recognition for what we do and we're just working and we want to just continue to work and, and you know, feed our families. And, and I mean, what's, you know, I mean, so I, I think the city has a choice to make, but without pressure, the city's never going to make the right choice. Mm-hmm. And, and like, I understood that when I became involved and um, the, yeah, I mean, you know, like I, like I told them out there that day when the cops were out there, I was like, listen, you guys have escalated the situation and there's going to be a response. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so it's... Meaning the city has escalated. Yeah, yeah, like you've yeah. escalated it. So um, also there, you know, Monday, city council, February 28th, the public forum, uh, folks are going to be out there. Um, and, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think for the vendors, I, you know, I can't speak for them, but I, I know that through my work, you know, there's... I'm working with them to take steps to professionalize and, like, you know, dot I's, cross T's, do, do those types of things from a legal standpoint. Um, so, you know, there's really, there's really no excuse and, um, I'm inspired and I'm just like so blessed and so grateful to be able to, um, to just do this work and really, especially at Eastland, like Eastland Mall is like, it's just like growing up. It's, it's iconic. Like, I yeah, it's, it's yeah. Like, yeah. That's man. my ice skating spot. Yeah, man. I used to, the mosque, the mosque is down the street. So I like after the mosque, like my dad used to take me to Eastland Mall mm-hmm. and I would just like go to like the comic book store, the video game store and the food court. Right. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I grew up in a part of North Charlotte that would be now considered more of a North Lake area. We used to call it university because there was nothing mm. where North Lake is now. But it just blows my mind that that was the closest mall. We used to be at Eastland all the damn time. Yeah. But uh, now it's like, damn, that seems like a far drive as an adult. <laughs> and it makes me more appreciative of my mom. But um, no, man, Eastland, it's iconic, like you said. And we've spent all these years wanting something to go in there. And and you mentioned in our talks that they do have some sort of incubator, at least played some lip service to something like that for the East Side folks, uh, East, East Side local local entrepreneurs, small business owners, and it's just all about now. Hopefully you'll play a role in, in making sure that gets done. Well, yeah, I mean, there's, um, uh, how can I put this delicately? I talk to a lot of people, mm-hmm. um, and, you know, it is what it is. But, yeah, I mean, that, that's supposed to be a part of it. I mean, it's, um, I don't know if the plans have been released publicly mm-hmm. for, for, the, for the redevelopment site, but that's supposed to be a thing, including certain businesses local businesses and we really want to see that you know yeah i don't think specific plans yet but david tepper's certainly been pushing that yeah. lip service wise since before the rezoning so 
hopefully we can, you know, make that community power sort of happen and hold them to account for that. God better start Frenching. <laughs> yeah. Also, too, I mean, with the with the, the skateboard park, I mean, the, you know, the vendors have an interest in working with, you know, I mean, like making right. something happen there. Right. So. And I'm going to put you guys in touch. And that's uh, something I've been meaning to do for the last three days while I've been pushing out, trying to get the paper to put together. But that's, I'll put you guys all in touch to make sure that there's a, whatever organization needs to happen can happen. But uh, that's really, I really appreciate you coming on, man. Yeah, um, I appreciate you having me. If you want to plug where people can find your law firm <laughs> as well and stuff like that, any yeah, of your yeah, last yeah. plugs, feel free to make them again. Absolutely. Um, so I am uh, Ishmael Kayyem, the principal attorney of the Queen City Community Law Firm. Uh, we are at 4938 Central Avenue, uh, 28205, which is inside the Latin American Coalition building. Uh, you can shoot me an email at info, I-N-F-O, at qcclawfirm.com, um, number two, uh, 980-281-2798. Um, do I have an IG or Facebook? I have a Facebook page, too. <laughs> um, the website is just... Sounds uh, like you're very active. Huh? Yeah. Oh, uh, the website is just qcclawfirm.com. Okay. And, um, of course, the Housing Justice Coalition, um, Charlotte Housing Justice, um, Facebook, uh, Instagram, uh, HJC underscore CLT, all lowercase. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, we're out there. Uh, some of us will probably be at the city council public forum on February 28th around that time. Uh, if you want to come and talk to us, feel free to reach out. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm around the city, uh, doing whatever it is I do. So right. also you might catch me, you know, in, in court and if you find yourself there, mm-hmm. you know, uh, <laughs> or in trouble. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully, hopefully better circumstances. Yeah. Tonight, February 25th, Friday night. Uh, we are having an activation book release launch event at the Charlotte Hornets game. Our new book, Legacy, Three Centuries of Black History in Charlotte, North Carolina, written by historian Pam Grundy, is releasing today, Friday, and we're going to be at the Hornets game. You can buy it there, but also if you can't make it, Justin has been working his ass off on going online, live. Where can they find uh, where to... It'll be available on our website. You'll yeah, just it. go to our website. And just it'll don't be, be an idiot. It'll be easy to find. You've got the internet. Yeah. I'm tired. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's late in the day. My eyes hurt. But we really appreciate you coming on. It felt like a 10-minute talk, but we covered a shit ton of... I covered a lot of stuff. I appreciate you guys inviting me, and I'm, I'm always... I'm happy to be here and do what I can. Until then, uh, we'll see you at the next one. Cheers. Peace, peace. queencitypodcastnetwork.com.